Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. You built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 17-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And my name is Annie Goodman, journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay. That's 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Join us tonight as we welcome young adult survivor, chef restaurateurs, Eric Levine, winner of Food Network's Chop, and proprietor, the proprietor at Morris Tap and Grill in New Jersey, and Hans Rufert, author and proprietor at the Woodbridge in Georgia, and also author and uh, breast cancer survivor, Jen Smith, of Learning to Live Legendary in the Survivor Spotlight. All right, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. And a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we come to you live, broadcasting from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. And with that, we say... Hello. 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 Hello, Kenny. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Annie. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Maddie Beckett. Hey, how what, are you? What's going on? Not much. It's pretty spiffing your fire department hat. And his red and black stupid cancer shirt. I'm more concerned about the hat. Are you actually working for the fire department? Okay, because I'm never burning he's, anything he's again. He's interning <laughs> for them. Okay. You're like for us. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, okay, I guess the big news is Super Bowl. Yeah. Super Bowl. Ugh. No cancer, but still Super Bowl. Yeah, and unfortunately the Ravens had to win. Well, the blackout. Keep it on the East Coast. What's the lesson blackouts, Kenny? I don't know. Well, I suppose everyone was affected. Well, then you all, you black out every night. So. Wow. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's, that's a fail. That is a total fail. Somehow I, I wind up at home, though. No, but everyone knows that I am an anti-sports man. I don't like sports. I don't care about sports. But I watch the Super Bowl every year, mm-hmm. usually for the commercials. But this was the first time I watched the Super Bowl for the game. Really? Why this, why this time? Because uh, I had a really nice television. Oh, okay. That <laughs> the makes TV sense. induced my wanting to watch the game. Yeah. 
I also like what they've done with the game. They string these cameras along, like these uh, these jibs that yeah. cross over the field. Yep. It's kind of cool. Yeah, they do that a lot of. I'm a huge sports fan, and I'm a Jets fan, which explains why I'm so jaded about football and about <laughs> the Ravens. Right. But, um, yeah, they've been doing it for a little while. All the big games get those uh, fancy jib cams. This is happening. You have enormous budgets and a lot of viewers watching. I've been to a big Yankee fan, and I've been to a lot of playoff games, and it's like it feels like it's going to hit you in the head and you're sitting in the nosebleeds. Right, right, right. But it's pretty cool. And then sometimes at a lot of these big sporting events, they have the blimp with the cameras in it, and you get, like, the really cool overhead shot. Exactly. Um, But they couldn't do that because uh, it was in a dome. Yeah. But... uh, They really nice shots of the dome. Yeah, so you got the, uh, you know, the cool jib shot, but when it's, like, a big outdoor stadium. And next year, it's in New York. Well, okay. Not New York. It's New Jersey, Rutherford, whatever. Wait, the Super Bowl is going to be in... Rutherford, Rutherford, New Jersey, Jersey. yeah. Giant Stadium? Yep. Oh, my God. Okay, it is MetLife Stadium. The Jets play there, too. Okay. So, anyway. When are the Jets coming to Brooklyn? Yay, corporate sponsors. (laughs) Well, the Jets tried to go to the Upper West Side, but that failed. That would have been awesome. But... Anyway, you might be in a stadium on the Upper West Side. How I would, would that even work? I don't. I think it would have to be like Upper Manhattan. It'd be like the Legion of Doom thing that goes onto the ground under the ocean when well, you don't need it. There's some there's some big market teams that which have stadiums in in cities. I know that I've seen like Soldier Field for Chicago, for the Bears and Narrows is in Chicago. Right. And so not. I know like the the Pats their studio their uh, stadiums in. Um, I'm blanking. Westboro. So it's uh, a little bit out. Uh, sorry, Foxboro. So it's a little bit outside Boston. But, right. Um, you know, it would have been awesome. I mean, we have Barclays now in Brooklyn. Uh, the big issue is eminent domain. People don't want to be uprooted. Right. And that was a huge issue with uh, Barclays. But anyway, so, yeah, next year it's at Rutherford. And what's interesting is Super Bowl in the winter in February. In Jersey. In, okay, yeah, it's Jersey. <laughs> I know, it's Jersey. It's Rutherford. Jersey. Not New York. But... The quarterback of the Ravens, who's MVP, Joe Flacco, said it was, quote, retarded oh, to have it. That's a great word to not use ever. I know. You know don't worry. He got in trouble for okay. saying that. <laughs> but he said that it was the R word um, to have the Super Bowl in New York, New Jersey, because of the weather. Right. And I hope that there is. It's an open dome, too, isn't it? it oh, yeah. It's totally yeah, yeah. open. I hope that there's a blizzard, and I hope that Joe Flacco has a shovel, because I'm it's, Not it's, a Ravens fan. Okay. But well, I'm sorry that they won then. You know, I'm sorry they won too, but I knew it was going to happen. I mean, it was just inevitable. Well, the only thing, it's funny because my wife's like, you watch football, you understand what's going on? Mm-hmm. I really understand the game. I just mm-hmm. don't care about it. I don't, I, don't, I don't follow anything until the big game, and then I watch it, and that's it. I watch, like, every weekend. I love football. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm a big, big baseball fan. Right. But I do like football too. Right. So, anyway. And Kenny? Uh... You're not sports at all, are you? No, yeah, I enjoy the sports. You're I mean, like, I you like highlight. Yeah, who? <laughs> <laughs> I don't sit there. I, I, I watch curling. <laughs> every, every four years I watch curling and I get super into it. Uh, no, I don't sit there and watch sporting games either, but I appreciate the existence of them, I guess. Um, I just, it's not my thing. I'm, I'm your the your only... thing is beer and motorcycles. Right. But never, yeah. never, never combined. Right. Mom. 
<laughs> I feel like I hold all the testosterone in this sports conversation right yeah, now. Yeah, you do. And Maureen, too, who's not here tonight. Yeah. Maureen, uh, Her and I frequently discuss sports. That's good stuff. Well, we yeah. need that. We need, she was all alone without you here. Yeah, uh, well, now, now I'm here to you know entertain her. Right. Matt, while Matt and I are discussing social media. <laughs> and, and computer and, stuff. And nerd, is, nerd strategy. Yeah, nerd, yeah. nerd crap. All your computer yeah. stuff is way over it's my head. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. She's run from us. Well, the other news is that it is World Cancer Day. Indeed. So the whole world gets to take a chemo shot, right? <laughs> Is that what it would mean? No? No. No? Okay. Not that kind of awareness. Okay. So the focus of World Cancer Day is to dispel damaging myths and misconceptions about cancer under the tagline, Cancer, Did You Know? World Cancer Day is our chance to raise our collective voices in the name of improving general knowledge around cancer and dismissing misconceptions about the disease. Now, I watched a video uh, earlier today that our friends at Livestrong put together, and they put together, they interviewed people from different countries around the world, right. what cancer means to them. Mm-hmm. And in some of the other countries, um, especially the countries that don't have as much money as you know, the United States. Like third world or like Europe? Um, no one in Europe has any money. A little bit of Europe, a lot of like South America, Mexico, right. and um, even Asia. And with Asia, there's definitely a stigma. They don't talk about it. Like there was an interview with a husband and wife, and he didn't want he had prostate cancer. He was older, but he didn't like didn't want to tell his wife about it. Right. So and it was really difficult for me to watch because part of it was, and this is something that everyone who's ever diagnosed with cancer deals with, is when you're diagnosed, people always think the worst. Which right. Is death. The, the perception is that you're, it's just a death sentence. Right, and that's exactly what this a lot of information in the video was, was that people were asking, what do you think you think of cancer? And I think of life-threatening illness, death, suffering, illness. And it's really tough to see that as someone who's had cancer, to see that that it's the reality of that. People think when they hear the word cancer, they think it's scary. And a lot of, you know, some other countries, they, people really shy away from sharing their survivor status or, they're living with cancer as a chronic illness or whatever it might be. Um, so it's really interesting. It's been a good way to get some good information out there to, you know, for us to promote. Does it work? I think it depends on the context. I wasn't asking you per se. Okay. Like, do you think it works? I think it can work. I think that if it's done properly by the different nonprofits of, you know, for us, you know, to remind people that of all the young adults who were diagnosed with cancer every year and send them to our website, as we've done, um, you know, throughout the day. And we do Stupid Cancer Does every single day. Today is not really an exception. But a lot of organizations are using it to, um, you know, just kind of promote what they do. As long as you don't do the stupid thing, like posting on Facebook what color bra you wear. Right, right, Try to raise awareness of breast cancer. Leopard print. I know, like pink. Yeah. I mean, come on. I think it, there's definitely a lot of potential. This kind of caught me off guard. I didn't really know it existed. So I, you know, I thought it was interesting. I use it to post some information, and I think that, you know, it has potential. My my final comment, because we're going to get to Jen in a second, is that it took 25 years mm-hmm. for the word cancer survivorship to be vernacular mm-hmm. in healthcare for cancer. 25 years. It was initiated like in the 80s, like in 84, 85. Okay, so here we are, 2013. Survivorship is now a word that is used in clinics, in medicine, 
it refers to the time between your, when you're diagnosed and whenever you die. Mm-hmm. A month, a year, 30 years, 80 years. That's survivorship, the, the act of not dying yet from something that might have killed you. So raising awareness for the idea that cancer is in a death sentence is really important. But in most of these third world countries, it is a death sentence because of access to care. Or am I just a victim of the stigma myself? Yeah. And the universe just exploded. Right. Any thoughts, Kenny? You just want beer, don't you? No. Why is this suddenly all about me and, <laughs> and my vices? Um, no, I, I think that I think it's a good way. I think the day is a good way to alleviate a lot of the stigma. One that I, you know, I'm living proof that you can't catch. You know, I haven't caught a brain tumor from you <laughs> by by, being, that, by spending 70 hours a week with you for the past. That three takes years. at least six years to that build up. That was actually a thing. Offer, I think it was you in can, India. Like, contag- contagious. Yes, I Pete, the misconception that cancer is contagious. I couldn't believe it. I'm still, I've met people who are like, you know, aren't you worried about working closely with these people? And I'm like, what? Where are you? Who are you? Wow. They were from from way out east on Long Island. They they never see a light of day. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have internet yet. Yeah. Got it. They still have dial up. Yes. (laughs) Good old Suffolk County. All right. Well, let's get to Jen. I'm excited to have her on the show. And uh, I'll let you, Andy, take the honors. Jen is author of Learning to Live Legendary. She's a single mom with stage 4 breast cancer. Uh, Jen was actually one of the first people who I was introduced to when I was diagnosed about a year ago. So Jen is very special to me. She's a beautiful six-year-old son named Corbin. Welcome, Jen. Welcome. Hi. Am I allowed to say Happy World Cancer Day? No, no, we're banning you from saying that. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, Annie, I really appreciated the background on that because I was wondering if it was one of those Hallmark holidays and I should be looking for, you know, a card at Target to give to all my cancer friends. But like sweetest day. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Hopefully exactly. it won't. That's actually a really good point. Hopefully it won't turn into that with, <laughs> like, giant pink ribbons everywhere and, you know, pink mix masters. Hopefully it won't turn into that and... World Cancer Day will be used in a positive way to educate people. So right, to I, it's really up, be productive. Yeah, it's up to all of us as advocates to make sure that that does not happen. Yes, I totally agree. And, Matthew, I, um, I agree with you about the, the stigma of it, but it's not just in third world countries where people aren't surviving this. I mean, here in the United States, I have stage 4 cancer, and so I don't relate to the title survivor, survivorship, um, and and, and it, it is what will kill me, you know, heaven forbid, as long as I don't get in a car accident going home. But um, it, I think we need to, to really um, honor those who are living with this every day because, for me, every day is cancer day. I well, don't have just a, one day of the year to identify up, it. Yeah, and I was just going to say it brings up a really interesting philosophical debate. The reason that the word survivorship was invented or the conception of it 25 years ago was because there really were no standards to take care of the quality of your life after the medicine part was over. No one lived with cancer in the 1980s, the 1990s, even mm-hmm. even as far as five or ten years ago. No one really lived with cancer as a lifestyle, as a chronic disease. 
So the, the, the origins of that word were really meant to serve as a kind of, when the doctor says you're cured, you're home, that's not the end of the story. So between that, the oh shit week and your treatments and the rest of your life, that was survivorship. But today, here we are, and thanks to progress in medical technology and science and advances in, in clinical trials and medicine, that there are people living with cancer, living lives, living 3, 5, 10, 15 years with cancer, yeah. chronic disease, where does the word survivorship really belong? Very, very good question. I don't know. I know it's something we wrestle with in the metastatic breast cancer community. We don't often relate to the word survivor because that gives the implication that you're done with it. Right. You know, you, you've triumphed over cancer, and I hate the whole battle analogy of, yep. you know, the mm-hmm. war on cancer. Well, no, this is my own body. It's a yeah. civil war in my own body. Um, but, but yeah, how, what do we really um, – we haven't found a great – label to identify with um, in the stage four community. There's, there's, you know, warrior and thriver and all this, but of course you have to sound really brutal and brave. Yeah. <laughs> only those people are the ones who are living with it, which is yeah. a bunch of garbage. But Right. Well, why don't you start at the beginning and tell us, you know, where your whole entire, I hate the word journey, but where your whole cancer story started. Yeah, so I um, I'm, I kind of refer to myself as a freak of nature. So my journey Welcome started back freak in, of nature. Uh, freak of show. nature, yes. Uh, I'll take that title. Maybe that should be my title. I get survivor, <laughs> I'll go with freak of nature. Um, but no, I, back in 2007, I um, was nursing my baby and found a lump, assumed it was a clogged milk duct, and uh, after some testing, they revealed it was breast cancer, so went through a lumpectomy, six months of really, really um, intensive chemotherapy, seven weeks of daily radiation, and thought, oh, yay, I'm ready for this new normal that all those books talk about. Mm-hmm. And the first scan three months after radiation ended showed that not only was there a recurrence, there were multiple tumors in my bones, which made it a stage four diagnosis. So back into treatment I went, uh, and I have been on now 17 different treatments and had five different surgeries and radiation to six different areas of my body. So, um, you know, Victoria's Secret says they have the million-dollar bra. I have the million-dollar body and the insurance bills to prove it. So, um, yeah, I've been stage four now for over four years, which... It, you know, is wonderful. Um, the average life expectancy is under three years when you're diagnosed stage four with breast cancer. So at the time when statistically I should have been dead, I quit my dream job, which was an academic advisor at a community college, and decided to make my own sort of a bucket list and decided to pick what I really wanted to do. If I was on borrowed time, this was how I was going to spend it. And Matthew, like your get busy living slogan, that's exactly what I did. And so I went about, you know, accomplishing these things on my bucket list and uh, decided then, um, well, what am I going to do next? And my doctor told me I needed new goals. And so I decided to write a book, which was Learning to Live Legendary. Because part of it, the big piece was learning to live and think about the living piece instead of the dying piece. But go beyond just living and push it to legendary. So at what point along your journey did you actually believe a book made sense? Because if you're basically, if the the perception is that you will eventually die from metastatic breast cancer, 
is the purpose of the book really just that message to other people that no matter how much crap is on your plate, you can still make the most of a bad situation, rhetorically speaking? Rhetorically speaking, of course. Um, Yes and no. I originally wrote the book as kind of an elaborate thank you note to about 30 people who helped me do some really awesome things. Like I went to Hawaii and stayed in the house of a distant relative who I met once when I was 12, and then I had someone else donate airline miles so I could do this, right? Because I'm now a professional cancer patient, and guess what? The paychecks aren't that great, are they? (laughs) So um, I really wrote the book as a thank you to about 30 people, and then when those people got it, they said, but I want to share this. And so at that point, um, then it just kind of went uh, viral, and, you know, several people – not several people – Lots of people bought it, Um, and so I also felt it wasn't a true look at what it's like to live with metastatic cancer because in it, it looks like, hey, she set these goals, and wow, she's invincible. She accomplished this one and this one and this one, Um, and so I actually have a book coming out this spring called What You Might Not Know, and it's really a raw and authentic look of what it's like to live with stage 4 breast cancer and what it's like to really focus on living while being acutely aware of dying. Um, so, yeah, that'll be out this spring, and hopefully it'll give a, a glimpse into what it's like when cancer isn't just something that happens and then mommy gets better and everything goes back to normal. So, And tell us a little bit about your precious little son, Corbin. Oh, my little and, guy. And, you know, being a mom and being in treatment and all, everything. Yeah, he, you know, I, I, my life has been um, a bit crazy. So I had him, was diagnosed, was diagnosed stage four, got divorced, and then started giving my years themes. I decided if I'm going to keep living here, I'm going to have a theme for it. And so 2010 was the year of Jen, and it was all about learning how to be a single mom and date. I hadn't dated since college and um, really kind of rediscovering myself in this new role. And then 2011 became 2011 and the Magic 7, which was my version of a bucket list. And 2012 had the delightful dozen and one thing each month to look forward to because my future I see in three-month segments from one scan to the next. So it tells me if treatment's working and if my life will stay as it is right now with these side effects or if I have to anticipate new treatment and new side effects. Um, but in it, Corbin is just, he is um, absolutely what keeps me going. If I didn't have him, I would have uh, stopped the, the nonsense of all this treatment a long time ago. And what's really um precious about him is he doesn't understand that cancer is a big, ugly, scary word. He doesn't see the stigma in it. He's only known a mommy who has cancer. And so the other night we were filling out this book called Mommy and Me, um, and it had a quiz where we could quiz each other and fill it out. And one of the questions was, uh, you know, is your mommy right-handed or left-handed, and what kind of shampoo does she use? And, you know, kind of silly questions, but then was, what, what does mommy collect? And when I filled it out for Corbin, what does Corbin collect? I wrote Legos because he mm-hmm. loves Legos. And so when we were when he was answering it, I said, "Well, what does Mommy collect?" And he goes, "Cancer." Oh boy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and why do you say that, buddy? And he goes, "Well, you know, you just keep on getting it, so it's like you collect it." Oh wow. And so in my mind, I sat there and I, I laughed, and and then, well, you're right that that 
you know, very logical for a six-year-old. That makes sense. But in my mind, it also um, just broke my heart because I thought, gosh, you know, he's he's so innocent and doesn't understand that collecting cancer isn't a good thing, and I'm right. not trying to do that. Um, but at least he doesn't have the burden of my impending death, whenever it may be, um, carried with him throughout his childhood. Right. I want to go back to the book for a second. <clears throat> One of the reviews on Amazon, basically, I love this quote, a little bit of providence and a lot of love from friends. So I'd like to, uh, two-part question. Number one is, you know, the, the laughing gag in the cancer world is that you can't possibly know what it's like, and you have to have gone through it personally to have a change in perception. Do you believe that? Uh, and the second question is, what has writing this book done for you professionally and personally navigating through, I guess, part two of your bucket list? Yeah. Um, do I think it's changed me? Absolutely. I used to definitely be a um, stereotypical, you know, type A control freak. I wanted to plan everything out. And what this has taught me is how much of life is not planned. Um, don't get me wrong. I'll never, ever say cancer is a gift. It's not. It's a thief. It's a murderer. It's not a gift. Um, it didn't make me a better person. I was a pretty good person before this, I think. Um, but it really helped redefine my priorities. And so rather than um, putting up with um, things that weren't healthy in my life, I, I didn't. And I really decided to focus on myself and my health and and become, a, you know, I left my career of uh, almost a decade. And it, I loved what I did and I was really good at it. And I had to give up that piece of my identity. And as a young adult, that's really hard. Um, so it, um, it, it, did it make me a better person? No, but it made me redefine how I spend my time, and it made me um, very focused on quality of life because my quantity of life is likely going to be compromised. So I think that answered your first question. What was the second one? I'm sorry. Does, it, does everyone have to go through something as traumatic as cancer to gain perspective on life? I don't think so. You know, I think everyone has a unique, unique perspective on life. Um, but there are things, and that's part of what I'm writing about in the second book, there are things that unless you've been diagnosed stage four, unless you've watched a friend die of the same disease that's devouring your own body and essentially seen a glimpse into your future of what could happen, others can't get that. You know, everyone, there's the proverbial, oh, well, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Well, Really? Would you like to trade odds? Right. You know? and, and every time you see that bus, do you think you're dying? And do you watch your friends get shoved in front of that bus and killed? And, you know, it, it, do, you, do you think of um, what it's going to feel like when that bus hits you? So I hate it when people say that, and, and I know they're trying to be kind and trying to relate, but, but I think it does an injustice to the person who's going through whatever traumatic experience it is, whether it's cancer or, you know, some other life experience. So why the word legendary? You know, okay, so you guys speak my language. I am a beer girl. Um, I was at a bar one night with some friends, and on the beer sign it said, Live Legendary. And I was bald. Um, I had a wig on, and um, it was actually for, a, like, a short speed dating thing and I thought well hey I'll try this 
Um, but seeing that, here I am, I'm bald. I'm, I'm completely, like, made up to try and look normal, although, you know, I didn't appear that way without uh, cosmetics and the wig. Um, the Live Legendary really stuck with me because it wasn't about speed dating or meeting someone, but it was really about investing into my own life and making it a legendary memory for my son, being able for him to say, you know, wow, when my mom got cancer, it wasn't just that she laid on the couch sick all the time, although I definitely do. Um, it was she really chose how to spend her time and spend that time in legendary increments, whether it be travel or um, spending time with family or precious friends, you know, those were all really high quality items on my list. And it helped me really stay focused on that rather than just focusing on the the depression and um, the disease itself. And what's your advice for other people, whether it be being faced with stage four breast cancer or another, you know, form of cancer, what would your advice be to them of, you know, how to get by day by day and not to, you know, living with a chronic illness that is stage four cancer? Yeah, I think um, what you guys do is so brilliant in in really getting connected to other people who understand it. They can speak that same language that you can. They can understand, oh, here are my side effects. You know, I was constipated. Well, oh, geez, I was (laughs) nauseous or I had diarrhea. You know, those aren't conversations you have with your coworkers. But they're often, (laughs) right, they're, they're often huge issues that impact your quality of life. And so finding others and connecting to others, there are other people who have been there and done that. And um, Stupid Cancer is a great resource. Of course, Emmerman Angels is another great resource. Um, and you guys are so brilliant at, at bringing people together. And I love the summit. I was able to attend that. Um, and that was part of my legendary piece back in um, the the Magic 7 of 2011, but that was so eye-opening to see other young adults who we had all heard that scary word, cancer, but, you know, damn it, we were going to go, and we were going to have fun, and we went out on the boat, even the though legendary it was storming. Oh, the booze, oh, the booze, <laughs> the booze yeah. That was incredible. <laughs> I, I wore a, a garbage bag to protect myself from <laughs> the, the, the sideways rain. Oh, it it was insane! Like white walls. It was amazing. You know, just coming in. It the was, open bar it, helped. Yeah. It, yes, yes, it did. Um, but I have so many great memories from that, and just from the conference as a whole, um, the summit as a whole. And I'm so bummed I won't be there this year in Vegas because my sister's getting married the following weekend, and so I had every intention until she said, "Hey, will you be in my wedding?" Can't turn right. it down. That's well, another big bucket list item. We we are having another OMG smaller one in New York in September, and if we raise enough money, we'll have another booze cruise. So we'll, we'll play oh. that game. Awesome, awesome! Right. I will keep my eyes peeled for that. Jen, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope thank I'll look you forward guys. to meeting you one day. Andy speaks the world of you. You're an amazing person, and uh, congratulations on everything you're doing to get busy living. Awesome, thanks. Thank you, okay. Jen. All righty. Right, let's breeze through the news here real quick. Kenny, what's Hello, going on? Hello, I'm Ken Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All right, Matthew. Yes, sir. Head on over to events.supercancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something will be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. All right, coming up here, we ha- I'm just going to read them off as we go down. Uh, New York City is having a Sloan Kettering Young Adult Meetup. We have Stupid Cancer Meetup in Denver, Colorado. Followed by the What's Next Conference, How to Get Busy Living, this weekend in New Jersey. And then next week we have Durham, North Carolina, L.A., 
Special shout-out to an event here in New York City on uh, Wednesday, February 13th, The Man Under. It's a night out at an off-Broadway performance where we will be representing Stupid Cancer in unison. And uh, this is a real interesting one, Matt. Anchorage, Alaska. Anchorage, Alaska. Pretty awesome. Burr. And Burr. Burr. <laughs> we'll, we'll end there. At the Shiver call, me timbers. That's the coldest one. All right. <laughs> All right. The sixth annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is happening April 25, 26, 27, 28 at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas. Uh, the uh, four days of awesome at one of the largest patient gatherings of its kind in the world. Uh, visit omg2013.org today and learn more about the Players Club, which is an exciting way to earn travel reimbursement through fundraising. That's omg2013.org. All right, Matthew, the Stupid Cancer Store has a ton of awesome products. Use coupon code BMINE, like Valentine's Day, BMINE, for a 20% off discount. Wear Stupid Cancer, be proud, stupidcancerstore.org. And do not forget about the Stupid Cancer Forums with almost 5,000 members. This is a premier online community. To connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you, visit stupidcancerforums.org and sign up with one click through Facebook, and that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right, I'm excited for this guy. Been waiting, waiting a couple of weeks to get this guy on the show. Read about him. Got to get him on the show. Eric Levine is a five-time, count him, five-time young adult cancer survivor. He is the uh, winner of the Food Network Chopped uh, reality show contest. He's the proprietor at Mars Tap and Grill in New Jersey. as a bakery also. Uh, all around, really, a great character. I'm really excited to have him on the show. Please welcome Chef Eric Levine. Eric. Hi, how are you? How you doing, buddy? I am doing great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's an I understand you're at work, so we'll try not to keep you that long. Yeah, that's okay. I have the dogs at bay right now. Everyone's good. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I'm like I said, I read about you. I I think that you had a big article come out on like CNN or something, and like I got like 50 emails the next day. Oh, that's funny. You, <laughs> yes. you got to know this guy. So I'm I'm really thrilled to have you on the show, and I'd love well, to, thank to you just for having me. let's just kick it off. Five times Survivor, huh? Yeah, um, I've been uh, I've been blessed, uh, as, as odd as it may sound. I've been blessed with having to go through this. Uh, it definitely has made me change my perspective of life and uh, my approach to the way I live and, and what I do for others. So, you know, uh, really paying things forward these days. So how old were you when you were first diagnosed, and what was your life like prior to? Um, geez, I was 29 with my first diagnosis, which was chondrosarcoma. And uh, which was pretty surprising at the at 29, and not having really any systems symptoms, always being very healthy and, and aware of, of just life and, and playing hockey and living and, and enjoying. And then it kind of came uh, surprisingly hit me. And uh, you know, for six weeks, I didn't tell the family, and it was kind of one of those things that uh, it was about not stressing anybody else out. Right. And uh, yeah, you know, it's, I, I guess as time's gone by, and 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 I've dealt with other bouts of cancer uh, you learn to try to let people in but it is certainly a uh, an individual approach to it I guess it's, it's hard to really explain unless you've gone through it and uh, sometimes there are people who want want to help and sometimes there are people who just want to let me do this I got my battle and, and let me fight and I'll and I'll beat it you know mind over matter exactly exactly so one quick question and Annie wants to chime in here but clearly oh by the way chondrosarcoma is the same it's very rare obviously um, yeah. Doug Ullman, who's the CEO of Livestrong, had chondrosarcoma when he was, I think, 18 or 19. Wow. So just you're in good company. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I love that, by the way, 
whenever I mention the Culinary Institute of America, we say CIA, right? But everyone thinks right. you work for the government then, of course, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, yeah. I've gotten that my whole life. I'm like, oh, you work for shit and tell people about that. I'm <laughs> like, yeah, I could kill people in other ways. So. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so you're, you, you're pretty much born to be a chef. This has been the love of your life since you were young. And you, you, this was your goal in life, and cancer didn't sort of stop you. Kept pursuing it. Could you just talk about the challenges of completing education or getting? I see you went to all these wonderful schools. You went, you know, uh, working in France, and and you know, even just starting your own restaurant. And again, Annie hates the word journey. I'll just use it because I hate the word journey. No, the word I can think of right now. But but all right, 29 years old to however old you are today, 20, 31. You look great for 31. Okay. Oh yeah, I wish I was 31. Good. Thank you. <laughs> The career, navigating your career through these challenges, it's something that most young adults face that doesn't really affect 70-year-olds that get cancer. You know, it, it's unique, you know, and, and you, you've done an extraordinary job proving it can be done, but I'd love you to just share with our listeners what that has been like for you. Well, uh, well, yeah, you know what, it, it's my motivation. It's always been my motivation, and I think uh, uh, my family will tell you, anybody who asks about me, um, my passion for what I do, my love for what I do, has always been the thing that's led me um, to to fight, to survive. Uh, it's instinct. It's it's like kitchen. It's like cooking. Uh, everything is a sixth sense, and you kind of find the the inner strength to do it. You know, my family and uh, wife and kids have always been supportive, though uh, I probably blocked them out a lot more than I ever should have. Okay. But it's the thing that pushes you. For me, it was the food. It was. Um, always striving for perfection. Even to today, it's it's it was the thing that blocked out the battles that I was going through, the near-death experience. When I had my last battle uh, of cancer Richter syndrome, uh, you know, they gave me six to eight months to live. And the next day, I went on chopped, <laughs> and I won. So there's there's a little bit of self uh, push, and and I always use the term fire it up. Um, I yep. fire it up every day, and, and I get my people excited about what they're doing and, and motivate them, and paying, again, paying it forward. It always comes back to that. So so the motivation really came from not allowing myself to fail. And I think through that, it was through all the chemo and the radiation and the sickness and the, you know, the fevers and the just not, you know, not always doing what my doctor told me to do. Um, I, I just per- I persevered. I, I pushed my mind to be strong, to think in positive manners, no matter how many people would call me and say, oh, I feel bad for you. Well, don't feel bad for me. I don't feel bad for me. You know, don't, don't put, you know, so for me, when I do public speaking for the American Cancer Society, you know, for other organizations, I talk about, uh, to can- not can- cancer patients, but to the families, about how to deal with that cancer patient, because they throw that extra weight on the shoulders of the cancer patient, and they go, oh, I'm so worried about you. Well, I'm worried about me. Now I'm worried about you worrying about me. <laughs> right. So it's, you know, it's, it's one of those vicious cycles. So I think for me it was really wanting to, you know, not even worry about it, so to speak. Uh, the pain and, and everything that went along with it, I kind of pushed it to the side because my mind is my strongest weapon, and I try to share that with people who are going through, whether it's cancer, whatever it may be in life, uh, trying to be strong. I always tell my my children, you know, you have to have a, uh, a strong heart and a strong mind, and you really have to push to get where you want to go in life. And part of it is living also. So where I have maybe, you know, not been as successful in the family side, uh, you know, I try to use that and, and to push 
the people around me to be better, uh, to be better myself every day, and to learn from it. You know, it's it, like it is a journey, and, and I do hate that phrase more than anything, <laughs> but but it, but it is a journey. Um, I just got recently invited um, down to Tennessee in June to keynote at the uh, Tennessee Cancer Coalition. And never in my mind had I ever thought about doing anything like that because I, you know, I do a lot of public speaking for the industry. Um, and sometimes the American Cancer Society, but never to be invited to a keynote about my experience because I'm nothing special. You know, I look at, you know, what I could do to make others better and how to motivate them, you know, in, in, with life. And to me, it's just been about paying it forward and, and being a positive spirit and being one to push. And, you know, I always re- I always revert back to my grandma who, unfortunately, you know, she had cancer, she had diabetes, really not, not in the greatest place, but she always had a smile through all the pain. So that was one of those things I've always carried with me. You know, her motivation of not letting the dogs get at you. You know, well, kind of, you know. I've seen a lot of Chops. I, I actually, I've seen her episode. You know, it's been a while. I remember um, they mentioned that you were a cancer survivor, and I love, love, love Chops. And it is super, okay, beyond everything you've been through with cancer, it is impressive solely that you won that show. Because for uh, anyone who okay. doesn't watch... <laughs> It's, they basically give you a basket full of weird crap, like beef jerky and, like, pomegranates, and they're like, make something. So, yeah, and, and no time, you know, when they talk about, I get a question asked for me a lot, especially at my restaurant, when people recognize me, they, they ask the, is that real? Is that really real? What happens? Do you not know? And my reaction is always <laughs> to live through it is to really understand it. But yeah, there are no timeouts. There's no okay. Let's do this over. Hey, here's what's really in the back in the basket. Wink, wink. There's none right. of that. You go and you bang and you have fun. And that's that's the fun part of it. Yeah, that show is awesome. If anyone hasn't seen it, they have to see it. I can't wait to your show. I was searching online all day and I couldn't find your episode online, but I've definitely seen it before, and I've seen probably like 100 episodes of it, and I absolutely love it. I love Ted Allen. I'm yeah, super, it was great. I'm super impressed with everything you've done in your life, your advocacy, and I'm super impressed that you won that show. So oh, thank you. I can't wait to see the repeat, so now that I can put it all together, that I know who you are now. So <laughs> as a chef, I just wanted to ask you, you know, how did your cancer diagnosis did it change your cooking style? Did it change your career as a chef? Did it change your eating habits? How has having battled cancer changed your, you know, just being a chef? Well, I, I think at first I didn't think much about it because I was 29 at the time. And then as time went by and, and you know, you, you go through the ups and downs of, of the cancer and the, the chemo and radiation, and you're not really fully aware of it when, you're, when it's happening to you. But then all of a sudden it kind of hits you, and you go, okay, I have to change some of my eating habits. I have to change my approach to how I cook, which is a benefit to my customers. So, you know, where maybe I used to use a lot more heavy sauces, fatty sauces, buttery sauces, you know, I do more reductions. Um, I juice every day. So from a personal perspective, I I juice, you know, five, six times a day, and just it's better for me. You know, I always, trust me, when I say I love drinking coffee, but I I, I stopped drinking because I was drinking my sugar with some coffee in it. Uh-huh. You, know, <laughs> you, got, you know, I like the sweet, so I had to get away from that. So really focused on eating a lot more legumes, uh, definitely seasonal foods, uh, staying away from processed anything. I don't eat fast food. I don't drink soda. So really, in changing my personal habits, I was changing my customers' habits at the same time. So that was really a benefit to them. So even our, on our menu here at the restaurant, we have vegan section, and it's all seasonal, all 
light, all flavorful. So you can really do a lot. You know, and it changed, definitely changed my approach to uh, food as a whole, just to understanding food from a different molecular approach and understanding that, the, you know, there's a lot more to gain by natural, fresh, uh, staying away from processed foods. My mom always yells at me about processed foods. Right. <laughs> Right. No craft American cheese in your um, no, 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 not at all. <laughs> so I mean, I can go through the list of all the awards you've won and how recognized you've been. You've been a, a top sh- top ten, top twenty chef in America by a thousand different groups. You've been on a bunch of TV shows and and you've been all over the media. You know, what is it that sort of keeps you in in check in terms of staying creative and continuing to innovate in terms of of your, you know, sort of your. Uh, you know, weaving in all that you've been through, all the challenges you've been through into your creativity. You're bringing things into the world that have never been done before, and if they, if if you didn't do it, no one would, right? So how do you continue that? What are your inspirations to continue innovating through the, the culinary arts? Well, I, I think it's, it's taking a different path every day. It's taking a different walk. Instead of walking to the front door the same way I do, go through the side door, go through the back door, and look at things from a different perspective. I look at everything that I see, and I think of, <laughs> how do I make food with that? <laughs> how do I use that for a platter, for a presentation? Uh, I think it's it's also looking, it's going to sound odd, but at fashion, colors. Uh, when I create, I do a thing called boxing, and it's taking shapes and colors before any food is even injected into onto the onto the paper. So from that, I create. It's not stop creating. There's nothing that I can't do, and I always use the seasons as the motivation. But a lot of even textures, even colors, um, even looking at a building, a light, a lamp, uh, I've created some really fun and weird things from it. And sometimes they don't work, <laughs> you know, which is which is the uh, the motivation to do more and to do better. But certainly. Um, I think that's really, you know, really looking at things from a different perspective, not just a culinary, but from an experience. You know, how does it fit onto the plate? How does the customer enjoy it? Are there things that make them stop and think about, you know, a childhood memory? You know, a smell, a sound, a noise that the plate makes. You know, can I invoke that kind of emotion? So for me, from the creative perspective, uh, it's not stop. You know, I just look at everything as an opportunity um, on the plate in my life. Uh, looking at a box and saying, how do I build from this? So it's never, I'm never lacking in that. And it's kind of fun. It's kind of weird. I make my staff crazy, uh, my family crazy most of the time, because I'm always looking at things from not a normal perspective. And I think if you take away the, the average part of life and start to change it up and flip it upside down and say, how do I fit this uh, square peg into the round hole, then it's never ending, you know, for me at least. Yeah, so I, that's that's really where my motivation comes from, just thinking, you know, destroying the box, kind of crushing it a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> replacing it with something weird. I love it. I love it. And your website is very well. I design websites, so your website is ex- exquisitely designed. Great photos. Oh, thank and you. It's wonderful. I have one quick question. Annie has another question, but what are your thoughts on GMOs? Unless you're funded by Monsanto, you don't have to answer. No, <laughs> yeah. I, I would just say that uh, there's a whole world of land out there that could be you could raise your own you know grow your own vegetables and do it and don't let the government stop you but that's a whole different show i think right uh, you know well i was um, in, i meant in terms of like you know we we don't quite know its impact on wellness and we don't have any long-term data well, to show there's whether not enough, yeah there's not enough data to show right long-term impact um and any time you start to play around with things uh, you know you take it a step further away from its original base so then you start to get into this whole other world of what ifs, 
Right. Well, I don't. I don't want to be on the receiving end of a what if. I don't want my children, possible grandchildren, being on the side of the what if. What if we change this so much that it became such a negative effect that you know instead of having two arms, they have three or four arms. Right. You like know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, just it's just you know, it's it's scary. It's really really scary, uh, and you, you know, unless you grow it, you don't know it. That's how I look at it. Right. Well said. I like that. Yeah, and you are obviously super busy running a restaurant and all your different <laughs> media appearances, and I'm sure you have a plethora of doctor's appointments. How do you you know handle your family? Um, do you cook for your family a lot? Do you only feed your kids like kale and apples, <laughs> and then they're upset that they want to make chicken nuggets? <laughs> I, I will be totally honest. I, I, I very rarely, if ever, home. Um, and if I'm home, uh, we go out to, for dinner, uh, or they come here for dinner. We have a, a table in our kitchen we call Kitchen Bar. Sometimes my daughter comes by and drives up here for dinner, and she sits in the kitchen with me, and we talk. And um, she's she's very well. Unlike my son, sometimes he you know he'll go for the junk, but he plays goalie. He's a goalie, so he's he's you know he's athletic, so it's kind of a good thing. But uh, you know, it's um, just changing the approach and and, and not having um, real processed foods, staying mm-hmm. away from the fast food chains, and that and that's a hard to, hard thing to do these days for most people because it's such a go go go. You know, go go. Their mom takes them everywhere. Well, not my daughter anymore because she has her own car, but you know, she's running all over the place trying to get them here, trying to get them there, trying to you know on the move, on the move. So it's even you know for her, she looks at it as. I gotta eat healthier. You know, I gotta take the extra walk in the park, and I gotta do the extra things to to keep everybody healthy. That's tough. It's not it's not easy. But when I am home, I you know, and if I do cook, if, if they're lucky enough for me to cook at home, right. um, you know, I try to look at things from, you know, we could do this in one pot and steam it and stew it and make it fun. Um, but I, you know, honestly, the reality for me is I'm so busy with stuff that uh, unfortunately I don't have a lot of that. Uh, that normal family time, but they're yeah. used to it by now after all these years of doing it. So it's a it's a blessing and a curse all at the same time. Uh, my customers enjoy it, and they come here for you know, my my family comes here for dinner, so I get to see them then. Uh, but uh, you know, it's it, it definitely unfortunately it's one of those things that when you're when you're in this industry and you're passionate about it the way you the way I am and it is what I do, um, everything else kind of moves in a different direction. Although I'm I'm starting to really understand the importance of family. Um, especially with the kids, you know, and, and it's one of those things I'm, I'm working towards. You know, that, that's probably the weakest thing in my life is, is being the dad, you know, being the husband type thing. And it's work. It's a work in progress. Listen, you know, together 26 years, and, and you try to realize that, hey, you know, I work so hard. I do so much. And it's not work to me. So it's easy to get caught into what's the next thing, what's the next thing. And sooner well, the, or later I'll catch it. The good news is I take your insurance. Huh. Yes. <laughs> So my drugstore psychology will be billed by the hour. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Eric, we we would love to uh look we have a thriving new, northern New Jersey uh chapter of young adults and I think it'd be great if we talked offline about maybe we do it like a meet up at the restaurant. Oh love it. I would love whatever I could do to uh to you know, to pay it forward and to and to work with uh, with people to you know, you never know where you support people if someone could help you could help somebody. Yep. And that for me that's what I'm about and you know, I try to do it every day, uh, with, especially with my customers and my staff, and, and working on the family. So it's it's progress, you know. And that, that's probably the the biggest blessing that uh, cancer has brought me is that an understanding of that it doesn't always have to be the same way. That you can step forward and uh, you can make mistakes and you can fix them. 
you know, life's uh, life's too short to waste wor- waste words and, and time, so I don't do that anymore. Well said. Well, fire it up, my friend. You are an inspiration. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. I look forward to meeting you personally, and uh, keep rocking on, my friend. All right, fire it up. Thanks so much, folks. All right, Thank Chef you. Eric Levine, ladies and gentlemen. I'm looking at his Facebook page. I'm officially hungry. <laughs> I'm going to, like, gnaw my arm off. I'm looking at all these different food websites. No, it's impressive. It's really, really impressive. All right, now up batting second tonight, actually batting first in the main section of the loge. I'm making words up. Anyway, <laughs> returning champion to the Stupid Cancer Show, Hans Rufert is a young adult survivor, and he, he, he'll he tell a story, but his story is best summed up through the headline on a Huffington Post article. Ready for this? Chef without stomach recovers from cancer and writes cookbook. I can't say it any better than that. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, my friend and yours, Hans Rufert. Hello, Hans. Hey, welcome. guys. Good to be talking to you again. It's so great to have you back on the show. I uh, I have to apologize. My voice is a bit weak. I've been kind of fighting a bit of the crud over the last four days. I'm uh, feeling human again, but my voice isn't as strong as it normally is. But uh, well, I, well, will, I, uh, I will endure, as I, I have I've, before. I've heard you address a crowd of hundreds of people. You do a pretty good job. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. I, that's become actually one of my one of my favorite things. You know, I I did debate through high school, which you know, debate is sort of this uh, almost a, a forum for a smart ass, and you have to be cocky and you have to be somewhat condescending. And I loved doing debate, but then I sort of got a little shy about the whole public speaking thing, and I never imagined myself um, speaking to groups like that. But I mean, since you and I first met, Matt, I've uh, I've spoken at Disney, I've spoken for Home Depot, I've um, I've done a lot of these sort of big corporate uh, conference things, and what a thrill, what a rush it is to be able to to have people, you know, not in an egotistical way, but it, you know, I've been on the receiving side of those messages, like from Zig Ziglar or at those survivorship conferences, and to be able to stand there and tell your own story like nobody else can and have people actually, you can see it in their eyes, there's a connection, there's some sort of a seed that you've planted there. Um, that's amazing. That's something I'm looking forward to doing more of uh, in the coming years. Well, tonight's show is called Surviving Sheftum, <laughs> and we just had a gentleman on the show named Eric Levine, who survived cancer five times and is now the proprietor of a restaurant in Jersey, um, I was, and I was eavesdropping on that uh, on that conversation. Very very nice all the way around. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's just like I I'm so awe inspired by how the young adult cancer survivor really owns what happens to them, and, and we just do whatever we want to do, feel the fear, do it anyway, just live, get busy living. He says, fire it up. I love that. No, that's uh, great. And y- you were given a two percent chance of living. Come on, you got to talk to me about that. Well, you know, that is uh, that is definitely pretty slim odds. And I, I tell you, my doctor lied to us. He actually said 20. He added a zero on the end of that at first. And it right. wasn't until about a year afterwards that he came clean and said, look, I, as as the words were coming out of my mouth, I sort of dropped a zero after the two. Uh, because even I thought, God, nobody's, gonna, nobody's even going to try if you tell right. them 2%. But, you know, the way I looked at it, and I, I might have, have talked to you about this before, but Immediately, I, I sort of put things in, in terms of analogies, and I looked at the wall. So even as the doctor's talking to me, I'm looking out sort of blankly at the wall, and I think, well, if I look at that wall, it's 80% wall and 20% door. And if I, if the only thing I think about is that 80% wall, I'm going to hit the wall. So I'm going to aim for the door. And, you know, in this sort of non – it wasn't even that solid of a concept, but, I mean, that's sort of how this idea formed to me that I'm – Somebody has to make that statistic, right? I mean, somebody has to be the 
20% of the 2% of the 1% of the or the 0.1%. Um, so who, you know, why on earth can it be me? You know, it's uh, somebody has to make the good statistics, so let's just set our mind to do the good statistics. And even on those ridiculously, incredibly low days, you just keep walking. And I, and I love the sort of analogy of how do you eat an elephant? You well, it's one bite at a time. Right. And it's same same thing with this type of a of a of a journey or of a battle or whatever whatever word you want to define it as. But as you're, um, or as I call it sometimes, it's the most expensive hobby I've ever had, cancer. <laughs> but uh, if um, you know, there's no way you can do it in one day, and you can't wrap your mind around all of the the challenges that you're going to have moving forward. So you do them as they come. Every every needle, every blood test, every every drip, every uh, radiation wave, whatever it is, you you endure them, you overcome them one at a time. And then before you know it, it's in your rearview mirror, you know. Well, it's funny. I mean, not funny, but like rhetorically, like Eric, you were also on a, a national food uh, challenge show. You were on the Next Food Network star. That's right. And yep. um, literally right after that was when you were diagnosed, right? Two weeks afterwards, in fact, you know, I was having a lot of the symptoms uh, during the challenge. And, you know, it's so easy in a stressful environment to write off any symptom that you have. I mean, here I am. I'm a, I'm a guy from a North Georgia town, and I've been, you know, whisked up to New York City, um, which I'd been lucky to go to a few times before. But still, it's, you know, out of my element. And I'm being sequestered in a hotel, and we're cooking for two solid weeks, literally all day. I mean, they wake us up at 6, and... We're doing something, whether it's cooking or photo shoots or, or being, um, you know, sort of under lock and key in the green room. We had something going on 24 hours a day for the most part. I mean, from sunup to way past sundown. So I was exhausted. I mean, purely physically exhausted. So every little symptom, whether it was nausea or exhaustion or digestion issues, it was so easy to um, just kind of pin them to this experience. But uh, two weeks afterwards, I couldn't ignore them anymore and. Uh, you know, to make a really long story short, essentially was sort of blacking out and went to the hospital thinking I was having a heart attack. My, I had classic heart attack symptoms and um, went in, and they sure enough, um, they found a, the tumor right at the junction of my stomach and my esophagus, and they estimated the tumor to be two years old. Um, so I had been, uh, that was my own little challenge going on during the Next Food Network storm. Um, so, you know, had I won that competition, which I did not, I came third in that competition. But uh, had I wanted, I wouldn't have been able to fulfill the, the roles of that anyway. Right. Uh, because quite quite honestly, I was just, you know, in for the ride of my life. I went in for the initial surgery where they removed half of my stomach and half of my esophagus. And over the last seven years, I've had 11 surgeries. Um, and I kind of joke with my doctor, I want a punch card like they give you at Subway, you know, with a 12 freak. Damn it, I'm due up one. But uh-huh. uh, but over those last 11 surgeries, I've, I've lost all of my stomach now. And... Uh, not lost it. I mean, it's just been, you know, somewhere in Houston in a jar somewhere. Right, right. <laughs> but, um, but I have no stomach. I have uh, very little esophagus, about two inches. And they uh, did something called a supercharged jejunal interposition, um, which I didn't even know I had a jejunum before all this mess started. But they basically moved my, my gut up to replace my stomach. Um, so, yeah, it's, it definitely is a, it's a, it's a challenge. And then um, I... I always sort of joke that um, the whole never trust a skinny chef thing, you know. <laughs> I'd like to think I'm the one exception to the to that rule. How has, you know, I'm, I've been reading about all the different yeah. surgeries and treatments you've had, and, you know, you've lost a significant amount of weight throughout all the different surgeries you've had. How has this changed your relationship with food 
And, um, you know, how has it well, changed as being a chef in general? You know, it's sort of a double-edged sword because, quite honestly, I was the, the guy that was already wasting his whole paycheck at Whole Foods prior to being ill. I've, I've always been a big um, sort of farm-to-table guy. And uh, <clears throat> my, my dad was from Germany, and he um, was a very sort of no-nonsense kind of guy, um, you know, like when when Seven Up or whichever one of these big uh, soda companies said now with real lemon, and my dad would look over and go, "What the hell was it before?" You know, like, and that's sort of the way I was raised. Like, of course it's all natural. Why wouldn't it be? You know, so um, I was a healthy cook prior to that, but it did definitely change the way I thought about portions. Number one, my life went from uh, quantity to quality because I have you know literally no storage at all. You know, I have to eat very small amounts at a time, and that connection between what we eat and how we feel is also extremely amplified in me. So if you've ever had like a big steak, and I know you guys are going to Vegas a little later on, and it's sort of a Vegas thing, you go and get a big, you know, midnight steak dinner or whatnot, and afterwards you just feel like you just ate a brick. I mean, you feel lethargic and tired, and and it's because your body has to really work now to try to, you know, break this thing down and, and help, you know, move through it, evacuate it. And... For me, that if I eat like a heavy, you know, meat-laden dish, within minutes I have to sit down and and nap. It's almost like my body's kind of shutting down because with no stomach, I have no stomach acid. I have, you know, uh, most of the digestive enzymes that go along with that are also, you know, missing or gone. I can't produce them, and so I've really kind of learned to eat the way I kind of feel like nutritionists want us all to eat anyway. You know, uh, in that In Defense of Food book that Michael Polony talks about his sort of guideline of how we should eat. And he says, it's very simple. All you have to do is eat food, mostly plants, not too much. And that's almost like a haiku that he came up with that summarizes the way that humans should eat. Right. And honestly, I feel best when I do that. I and mean, when he says eat food, that means real, genuine food, not Twinkies, not, you know what I mean, not Snickers, you know, mm-hmm. things that your grandparents or great-grandparents would identify as food. You can't bash uh, Twinkies on the air here. And Snickers Well, they're, so good. they're a thing of the past now. You know, we can't, uh, we can think of them... Uh, in a sort of uh, nostalgic way. Twinkies have feelings, too, you know. Twinkies are gone. <laughs> they're out of business. <laughs> they're out of business. And uh, the, the thing is, whatever stock remains will never decay. So <laughs> you that have that true. to look forward to. That is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hans, do you so, yeah, feel I mean, that, uh, just a quick question, do you, do you feel that um, the food that you cook, and I want to, I want to learn the, the story behind your restaurant being your parents' house in the 70s, it's an amazing, just and the, the narrative there is, it speaks for itself, but I want to hear from you on that. The the food that you cook that you prepare that's on your menu that you want your 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 customers to eat, is that derivative of your Michael Pollan based philosophies or has there been, you know, more of a live life to the fullest and you only live once and where's the balance between what you know people might want to eat and what they're going to eat and what they're going to sure. come to you to eat? That is an incredibly tough um, tightrope for me to walk on and I, it's a good point to bring up because. The, the restaurant really has to exist in, in two ways. Number one, we're in a rural area. And so, in Georgia. Uh, in Georgia, exactly. And we're an hour north of Atlanta, and most of our customer base does come from Atlanta. We There are two kind of resort areas near us, like Gulf communities. Uh, so Atlanta and Chattanooga are sort of our main pull. So we do get the educated food person, the person that comes up for that culinary experience. And with those people, I can absolutely, in fact, I have some guests that just say, you know what, Hans, you make whatever, you surprise me. And those are my favorites. Um, well, they're my favorite when they call ahead. You know, when they, when they surprise mm-hmm. me and they surprise me, that makes it tough. But um, but anyway, you know, that type of person, I absolutely can can kind of cook to my philosophy. But to run a business, you are somewhat you have to feed something 
that they will order and that you can actually, you know, survive on, profit on fiscally. Uh, and that has been tough. And it is sometimes I do feel a tiny bit uh, of a hypocrite because I want to be um, – I would love to make them all eat the way that I want to eat or think that they should eat, uh, but they're not going to spend their money for that. You know, they're not going to uh, to really uh, – again, a handful will, but a handful won't keep a, a, a historic 1880 hotel up and running. You know, so that's, that is a, it is definitely a – something that I wrestle with and, and I'm trying to make that uh, that shift in other people's lives. And you can't do it with a shepherd's hook. You really have to do it um, a little more gently. You know, you have to really sort of corral them to the idea. And oftentimes that means sneaking things on their plate um, that they aren't familiar with and asking them to try it. You know, things like quinoa or kohlrabi or, um, you know, okra or whatever it is um, prepared in maybe a, a way they've never had it before. And tell us a little bit about your cookbooks. Do you incorporate a lot of what you've learned since your cancer diagnosis in that? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And the interesting thing about the cookbook, and we, we talked about it, I think the first time I was on the show, is most of the cookbook was actually written, or at least the prose of the cookbook, um, not the specific recipes, was written while I was in the hospital. I spent seven weeks uh, at MD Anderson uh, NPO, which, you know, nothing, I couldn't eat or drink anything. And it's just like when you're a kid and you're told, you know, don't open that box. Well, all you want to do is open that box, whatever it is. You know, whatever you're told, you can't do. And I knew I couldn't eat, but I, wanted, I, I couldn't stop thinking about food. And so I actually began the skeleton of, of Eat Like There's No Tomorrow in the hospital, um, oftentimes sitting in the cafeteria with my family. Even though I couldn't eat, you know, they were embarrassed and they, didn't, they felt uncomfortable that they were eating in front of me. But to me, just to be around the, the food and the smell of food and the experience, that sort of ephemeral experience of sitting down at the table with your family and friends, you know, because eating is a lot more than just, you know, chewing and swallowing. It's, it's that whole thing. It's the whole, you know, it's being at the table. It's the jokes that are cracked. It's the, you know, it's the time shared. So that whole thing came together um, in the hospital. Uh, so absolutely, I, I sort of weave in my cancer narrative throughout the book. And um, I've been doing these little culinary tours to and from Italy over the past three years. The gentleman who suggested that has never read a cookbook in his life, and he doesn't cook. But somebody gave him the book as a, as a gift, and for whatever reason he picked it up. And he, I didn't know him prior to this, and he read it cover to cover, and he said, I didn't know you could read a cookbook like a book. So it's definitely not a traditional cookbook in that sense. It is a collection of recipes and, and thoughts on food, but the backbone, that sort of thing that ties it all together, is, is my uh, cancer story and those little epiphanies and little silver lining moments that you collect along your cancer journey. Do you want to just talk about the restaurant? Oh, I'd love to. It's a it's a beautiful place. It's um like I said, about an hour north of Atlanta, right at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. In fact, the Appalachian Trail, which ends north of you guys up in Maine, um, starts about 15 minutes from the restaurant at a place called Amicalola Falls. So it's just a naturally beautiful area anyway. And uh, it was built in 1880 as a railroad hotel when Floridians would come up to North Georgia to escape the Florida heat, and sadly, I think they brought that with them most of the time because it still gets pretty damn hot here in the summer. Um, so it's a really fascinating building, um, but it was somewhat derelict when my father found it in 1976, and first thing he did was throw out the deep fat fryer and took fried chicken off the menu, and he actually did a European sort of nouveau cuisine for 1976 uh, menu and brought that to North Georgia, which was just, you know, everybody thought that was going to fall on its face. And uh, we have... Uh, sort of struggled the first few years, but we've sort of become known as now the, I guess, the, the dining destination for North Georgia. You know, it's, um, it is a point that you don't necessarily eat there when you're on your way to somewhere else. You make that area, you come to the Woodbridge Inn 
as your destination. So we've got 18 guest rooms as well as about a 100-seat dining room. And uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a nice little uh, day trip from Atlanta or from Chattanooga. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. Um, Annie, you had a question? Oh, no. I've, you know, I actually went to college outside, uh, about an hour outside Chattanooga, and I started having flashbacks to driving through Lookout Mountain. Oh, on yeah. my way, yeah, it's pretty scary. It doesn't driving around a Toyota Corolla that is very <laughs> slow up Lookout Mountain is really scary because everyone's honking at you. You're like, I'm flooring it. I was having a little bit of a flashback of Lookout Mountain. Fine. Well, you should come back down and check it out because uh, Chattanooga has has had somewhat of a renaissance and uh, they've done an amazing job of uh, of transforming themselves from somewhat of a of a slightly dead industrial city into a thriving little uh, artsy, um, food friendly. Uh, community it's a great place my official favorite part of you hans is that you're like a fast-talking new yorker who lives in georgia <laughs> i don't know yeah. how that happened but god bless that you. was the debate that's what i was talking about in high school and when i was uh debate you had eight minutes to get your whole speech out there that's always been the critique of me is uh you know anytime on television there was like you got to slow it down yeah. and uh i i usually have so much information that i want to share with the viewer and i get so sort of self-excited i i i motivate myself like as soon as um I start going. I have a hard time. I want to get all that information in while I can. And uh, the other thing is, too, I, I get a bit of an adrenaline rush when I do those, even things like this or when I'm talking to a – I do a lot of mentoring for uh, for folks that are just diagnosed and um, or for folks that are having difficulty eating or whatnot. And I get excited about food. I get excited talking about it. So sort of the more my excitement goes up, the more <laughs> – the, so does the uh, the pitch and the speed of my of my speaking. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I will make a public uh, avow at this point. I'm doing my best to make sure that we might be able to bring you up to New York for our uh, Survivors Summit, the one-day conference, the OMG Light, if you would, here in New York City this September. I think it would be fantastic to have you there. And I remember when I – I think I first saw you – I don't know. Was it Vermont or something? Texas? I don't know where it was. It was in Houston. It was, Houston. At, the, it was at that Survivors conference, uh, the conference there for MD Anderson in Houston. Oh, you know what it was. That's what it was. Okay. And you actually did a food demonstration there in front of the crowd too. Yeah, and that is, I think, what I do the best. I mean, you know, it's um, it's a difficult thing to, call, uh, to sort of talk and cook at the same time, but I, I do that best. And I think if there is a little bit of a visual aid – People enjoy that. They they like it's almost like being at SeaWorld. You almost kind of want to get wet in the front row, you know, get a little vinaigrette on you and or whatever it is. So, um, it, and it, plus the food is one of those things that we all go back to, no matter what cancer we have, no matter what partner treatment. Um, even if we're not allowed to eat food at that moment, it is a crucial part. I mean, all the way from how we eat it to how it gets out of us, you know, and um, you know, with bowels are sometimes embarrassing to talk about, but it's a, it's something that it's the uh, the end result of every meal, you know. So. Uh, people feel comfortable in those conferences to ask questions and and uh, make suggestions and ideas, and it's fun. It's very uh, it's very sort of interactive and, and light, and uh, we keep it fun. Nothing nothing speechy or or like a lecture. No, it was really good. Everyone was enraptured, if that's a word that exists. I can use it. Uh, it does now. <laughs> yeah, I, I made up words. Okay, good. Good stuff. Good Hans, stuff. thank you so much for coming on the show again. I'm really it's really great to just know that you're part of our community. You're a good friend, and uh, good luck with everything. We'll be in touch. Always a pleasure. Anytime I can be of uh, assistance to, to anybody personally or professionally or whatever, I'm I'm here to help. Fabulous. Hans Rupert, so everybody. Take, Take care, care buddy. Night. I love these kind of themed shows where we have mm-hmm. like I mean the, the two amazing guys who you know crazy ass cancers and they own restaurants. They were on reality show food mm-hmm. competition. 
And now I'm ready to gnaw my arm off. Yeah, now we're really, really hungry here at the Super Cancer Show, yes. All right, well, it's 9-11. It's time for our uh, closing sequence. We're going to really fall asleep if I don't get some food at some point. Yeah. We're going to eat. All right. Kenny? Where? Annie? Maddie? Yes. It's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so... To all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, our 253rd broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. Okay, special thanks to our guests, Jennifer Levine, Chef Eric Lehine, and Chef Hans Rupert. Join us next week as we welcome activist and award-winning actress Gabrielle Union, who will share with us her efforts making a difference as a breast cancer advocate. Then we tackle the hard-hitting issue of fertility rights and surrogacy options for young adults affected by cancer with John Weltman, president and founder of Circle Circle Surrogacy, one of the oldest and largest surrogate agencies around. And he'll be joined by ovarian cancer survivor Jen Rockman, a recipient surrogate parent and breast cancer survivor and actress Alice Krishy, founder of Fertile Future. Alrighty, folks, if you've missed any of our past shows, you can download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.org or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.org anytime. Remember, folks, if it ain't cancer, it ain't stupid. And if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. I mess that up every show, every week. <laughs> it's a wonderful problem. It's becoming a, a new a new staple of the show. Live from the chemo deck on behalf of Kenny Kane, Andy Goodwin, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. I'm sorry, just saw a penis cake in the chat room. Okay. <laughs> Have a great week, and we'll see you here next Monday live at 8 p.m. Good night, folks. Good night.